Hey Kyle, Carly checking in from Minneapolis, Minnesota, currently on my lunch break overlooking the Mississippi River. Love listening to your podcast and getting to know some fascinating people and what they're doing in their day-to-day lives, along with helping out the environment along the way. I am a wake surfer, but I do enjoy listening to the culture of surfing and what it all has to offer. Coming from the land of 10,000 lakes, anything in the water is a good time. What the fuck is up, everybody? I hope you are all having a wonderful day. I know I am. And thank you to Carly for sending in that little voice memo there. I love getting these from you. If you want to send me a quick voice memo, let me know who you are, where you're listening from. I would love to play it at the beginning of the show. You can email it to info at kyle.surf. This was a fantastic podcast with a legendary human. Tom is a accomplished spear fisherman, avid adventurer, and early Mavericks pioneer. And I want to be like him when I grow up. He is 63 years old and still gets after it harder than just about anyone I know. Thank you so much to... Sam Mead and Willem Sims for donating to the podcast on Patreon this week. You gentlemen are amazing, and it is people like you who keep this show ad-free and keep these episodes coming at you every single week. So if you get value out of this show and you want to donate on Patreon, you can click the link below the bio on this show or head over to kyle.surf. That's where you can check out my documentaries, articles... All kinds of good stuff over there on Kyle.surf. I'm going to get this episode rolling for for you, for you. so uh, sit back, plan your next adventure. These are the kinds of episodes that will make you want to go camping and push yourself to be a better person. I like having people like Tom Powers on my show for that exact reason. So without further preamble, please welcome to the show... My man, Mr. Tom Powers. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Tom Powers in the house. Thank you for having me, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, we were just talking about when you started spearfishing. When I started, um, basically, I had dabbled a few times, having surfed all the way back. I, I started surfing late. I didn't start until I was 17 years old, junior in high school. First, first place I ever surfed in my life, the infamous, infamously horrible Princeton Breakwater in Half Moon Bay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, crappy equipment, um, freezing cold, um, horrible board, you know, just not a, not a good intro to surfing, but, um, but I was stoked, you know, I just uh, stoked from the beginning. And so spearfishing and freediving, 
um, basically I dabbled, you know, so basically back into my late teens, early twenties, I go out with like a pole spear at the lane, you know, absolutely not knowing what I'm doing. The first time I ever abalone dove is with, um, it was my lifeguard supervisor. I was 20 years old in 1975. Frank Augenstein, who is Ryan Augenstein's dad, was my supervisor for, yep. as a state beach lifeguard for Pajaro Coast in Santa Cruz. You know, it's pretty much back then it was only Twin Lakes and Castle Beach, Rivermouth. And, uh, and so Frank and old time uh, Santa Cruz surfer, um, Alan Souza, he was a teacher, a music teacher over East Side and grew up on the west side of Santa Cruz with old West Side Raiders, you know, kind of grumpy old local, but good guy, um, now expatriate in Kauai. So those guys took me out abdiving and we went up to Greyhound Rock and it was actually, it wasn't Greyhound Rock, it was just south of there, China Ladder and um, kind of hairy. I remember I had a big backpack. And, there are a lot of sharks around there, too. Oh, big time. Yeah, so, I mean, de- definitely in the zone, for yeah. sure. Well, there and, are those deep water spots in yeah. Northern California where it drops off real quickly. Yeah. And even if you've never seen a shark there, you just know that there's a feeling about them. And big time. It's, you know, it's, it's a place where it seems like they would be rolling through a lot. Yeah, I definitely would not. Um, actively dive up there in this state age, especially with increase of sightings of great whites and interactions with humans. So uh, that's that's one place that would, that would definitely be off my. So there were less uh, great yeah. whites back then. Yeah, there was. You know, so basically, I think great white population exploded. Number one, when since they've been protected. Number two, the Marine Mammal Protection Act back in 1972. I remember back then I was surfing Anyo, and you didn't really see many sea lion seals, elephant seals. Um, and, uh, and th- there's been an explosion, you know, huge perif- proliferation of, um, pinnipeds on the North coast. And, you know, we've seen it all over and obviously a uh, primary food source for great whites, you know, all the pinniped population. So anyway, so there's been an explosion. Are pinnipeds, uh, seals, sea yeah. lions, elephant seals? Absolutely. All marine mammals. Yes. Um, so Basically, yeah, there's a lot. So anyway, so the first time I got to dive with Frank Augenstein and Alan Souza, they took me out, um, set me up with an ab bar, you know, kind of full ragtag equipment. Um, and the ab bar was a, was a homemade abalone bar made out of a car leaf spring. And so basically I went out with them. We kicked out, you know, hiked down the trail, super hairy little switchback winding, you know, clinging to the cliff trail, just a full butt pucker trail on the way down. And, uh, and then we kicked out and we we're out at solid 30, 30 feet average water. And I remember these guys, you know, they're already avid ab divers and really, really good watermen. Frank was a great waterman, you know, swimmer, surfer, um, diver, and same thing with Alan. And I was the full rookie. So first time. Um, I finally saw one on the bottom. I remember getting down there like 30 feet, go, there's one, you know, right out in the, right out in the open and basically trying to get the bar under it and, and trying to get it free and just wiggling and probing and, and running out of breath and coming to the surface and not getting it. And, yeah, yeah, just sucking wind. <laughs> almost done, almost yeah. done. Oh, God. Yeah, for, so for people who have never yeah. ab dove, you have yeah. uh, an ab iron, yes. which basically acts as a spatula. That's a spa- get, spatula and fulcrum. Yeah. yeah to yeah. get under the abs because they're really strong and if they Incredibly sense strong. you coming they'll yeah. suck down and they they're do. really difficult to get off the rock yeah. and a lot of times they're in a little pocket where you don't have much access you know so they'll clamp down um and uh yeah really really hard to sometimes it just 
near impossible to get off once they've clamped. And if you don't have a good angle, you almost have to be like an abalone engineer to to really, really evaluate it and look at, okay, where where can I get my bar in? And then the other aspect of it too, once once you become more adept at doing it and knowing the proper way and techniques to do it, just uh, number one, to be able to get them off. And then uh, more importantly, not to harm the abalone. Abalones are hemophiliacs. If you nick them, you know, you, you, you uh, do a cut in them, they will actually bleed out. They'll bleed to death. So you have to be very, very careful that when you're sliding that abalone bar under there, that it's full abalone bar to rock content and you're not poking into the ab. And, um, you know, and rookies will, you know, I'm sure they kill quite a few abs before they get the technique down and, and know the right way to do it to not harm the abalone. Yeah, just like we, yeah. I'm sure I'm still butchering my fillets with fish and wasting yeah. a lot of meat. But yeah, it takes that time to get better at yeah, it. Totally. So that was when you could still dive for abs uh, south of San um, Francisco. San Francisco. Yeah, Golden because, Gate Bridge. Because now the law is that it's illegal to, well, I now, guess now, now it's just, shut now it's down. completely yeah. shut down. But for a long time, it was legal to dive for the red abalone which is the largest in the world north Absolutely. of the san francisco bridge uh, yep. golden gate bridge but just this year it's it was shut down completely shut down for the first time in history really and as a kid growing up we used to rock pick in pescadero and um then you know like i said slowly got in you know my first introduction actually diving was that time with uh frank and and alan and i ended up with zero abs um i think uh well, I guess it's safe to say it 40 years later, so I don't get uh, fined by DFW, <laughs> but they got my limit for me um, because I was completely inept and not capable of uh, even getting a single ab, and I managed to lose the abalone bar that they had lent me. So uh, and back then, the abalone limit was five abalone, and then... Um, and so I didn't ab dive again, but we used to rock pick a lot. I'd, I'd go, um, the Schmidt family, uh, the oldest brother, Conrad, Richard, Dave, and Raymond were all, you know, loved abalone. So we'd, we'd go in with backpacks and we would, uh, you know, basically we'd suit up. Um, I don't even, re- I don't think we ever had masker snorkels. We were just in an inner tidal zone getting a crap beat out of us. And we'd, we would hike into Horseshoe Reef from Scott Creek and get limits of blackout. Back then, the limit was, oh my gosh, it was five way back in the day. And I think by the time we were diving, that was uh, not diving, but just getting them rock picking in the early 80s. Um, the limit was four. And blackout abalone, they have to be a minimum of um, five inches in, you know, at the, you know, the longest part of the shell. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was nice. I mean, we come home and cook up big meals and it was really fun. Days when it was, you know, not very big surf and and ab was in season we'd go up and get our limit you know just basically just you know load up not not load up but load up our backpack with a limit of four it's just such a good additive to surfing because the best conditions for diving are when it's dead flat and around here the fact that we do have um you know a thriving ecosystem and you you can go out pretty much any given day and shoot a couple rockfish, which are a real tasty species and there are a ton of them yep. and come in and make fish tacos um, has been a, it's actually like helped me re fall in love with the ocean in a whole new way because my whole life I was spending my time on top of the surface. Yep. And the second I started diving down, you know, because of people like yourself, you were you were encouraging me to get into to diving. I remember we took that trip and uh, went ab diving maybe two years ago. Now up uh, up to near, in the Mendoc- now. Yeah. three year in yeah. the Mendocino Coast. Um, 
it's just it's opened up a whole new world for me. It's allowed me to learn about all these species that I had no idea about that live in our area um, and scare the shit out of myself, too. Yeah. Like, I, I feel yeah. like I'm just now getting to the point where yeah. I can think about hunting fish. Yeah. It's hilarious because I've spent so much of my time out on the water. Yeah. But getting under there and just being like, oh, this is a whole new world. Absolutely. It's really something new. And, and what you're experiencing is basically identical. You know, for me, it was a, it was a love affair. So what really got me going um, when I got completely addicted, I would call it spiked deep into veins, was 1987. Um, just, I think, flat period, summertime, abalone season. And I went up with, uh, it was Bud Miller and Vince Broglio took me up to Pigeon Point. And those guys were already diving quite a bit. And back then, guys, you know, just a few of the West Side guys like Charlie Heitman, Joe Stoops. There's a, there a few old West Siders that were diving. And so I went up and had a great time. And your very first time, it can either be horrific where it's crappy vid it's surgy and it's just and you're going why would anyone want to do this or it can be a time where it's pancake flat sunny beautiful crystal clear where you have top to bottom viz and 15 feet of water and you're looking down going oh my god it's absolutely stunning beautiful whole nother world quiet peaceful um just uh enthralling you know so i had one of those days it was a magic day um it was up at we used to call it pistachios it's just north of pigeon point san mateo county um basically the there's a little pullout north there there's a couple little cool. kind of weird uh, also also waves. just yeah. just say if if there's any spot that you don't want people to know about yeah, feel no. free to to rename it or no, something no like worries. that because no. These uh, are all. It's just it, you and me here, but there yes. are other people listening. Yeah, no worries at all. Um, and as far as abalone diving, then too, that's a moot subject because they shut it down right. over twenty years south of Golden Gate Bridge. But uh, so that was my first time diving, and I was super stoked. You know, I had so much fun. And then um, there's a whole crew of my good surf buddies that we started together, just like you and Tyler. Um, they're all my peers. We're all, you know, good watermen, you know, competent surfers. It was uh, basically it was uh, Scotty Schmintek, um, who Santa Cruz expatriate, moved to um, Hawaii. And then uh, Peter Bagnall, John Tanetti, Darren Anderson, Danny Foy and yeah, me were pretty much the crew. Yeah, a bunch psyched. of yeah, a bunch of guys I'd known since they were kids. So, or, so tell me yeah. about that day. What the day that you said you got spiked deep? What? Oh man, you know. So no, or basically, yeah. It said the spike went deep the into the base. No, I was addicted, man. Is absolutely just. I loved it. I mean, basically, it was uh, a whole nother world. And, and, you know, I was able to get an abalone my first time. So, I was, you know, super stoked. They weren't big abs, but, uh, you know, it's like treasure hunting and it's um, just so fun. You know, it's a good workout. It's um, just a whole, it, like you said, it opens up a, a, a whole nother world. You know, when you're used to be on the top of the water your whole life. Um, and also, too, I think you have a comfort level just because you're a good waterman. You have the confidence, you have the skill set as far as just, uh, being comfortable in a war, uh, water, you know, and pretty good uh, lung capacity, all that, you know. So uh, it was just really fun, you know, diving with my friends, and then we were all hooked. We we would go like during abalone season, we go all the way to the last day in November. We dive all up, um, you know, pretty much just all San Mateo County, all um, around Pigeon Point, up through you know Franklin Point. We're all you know it's great abalone zone, and it was fun, and we were totally hooked. And then. Pretty much simultaneously, when I came back to town, I was going, wow, that was so fun. Started um, started uh, spearfishing. And, um, and actually, 
you know, pretty much all of us started just with Hawaiian slings, you know, go out to like the lane or at beach where there's incredible, um, terrain and, and rock structure underneath. You get these tunnels and ledges and, and quite a bit of fish and, um, and it opened up a new world. I remember diving, you know, just all along the West side, anywhere from cows up to natural bridges. And like you said, you know, able to go out and get a rockfish dinner in which I love any fresh fish. And, um, and just got really, really hooked. I remember I went so much one summer that, um, that holding, holding the pole spear where you have a long, um, elastic band, you know, typically double band that I got tendonitis from having to think cocked and loaded and ready to blast wow. something that I actually, I got Yeah. It's, to, it's oh, hard, man. man. Like pulling yeah. those bands back. And yeah. I've, uh, I have a, a Rob Allen kind of just a little bulletproof gun to shoot rockfish and lingcod, but um, I have not done a blue water spearfishing trip yet, but I'm really excited to. Oh yeah. And I know that you need bigger guns for that kind of spearfishing. Absolutely. And yeah, man, I could see you really injuring yourself easily trying to get pull those bands yeah. back. And so you know, it, it, it hooks on to the end of the spear and then, so it basically looks like a shotgun with a spear on top yep. of it. Catapult. Yeah. Catapult. Yeah. yeah. And then you pull the trigger and, uh, Boom. yeah. It, uh, I mean, some of those guns are so big that like you really got to cock your arm before you shoot them. You could injure yourself even when you pull the trigger. No, you like got to be really, really careful. There's, uh, you know, so many things you have to be cognizant of from a safety standpoint when you're spearfishing, um, to not injure yourself or anyone around you, you know, especially like in, you know, poor visibility. But, um, but anyway, yeah, back in the, back in the day, you know, so we got into it just with um, real ragtag equipment. I remember I had a crappy pair of fins. I probably spent like 25 bucks, you know, at Outdoor World that I used for the first couple of years. We're all diving in surf suits and after extended periods in water, absolutely freezing your nuts off. And, <laughs> and, um, and, but we're stoked, you know, I mean, it's, it's just, um, I went all the time. I actually got to the point where during the summer, you know, and I'm still a surfaholic to this day, I get bummed when the swell came up, you know, so we were going up, um, you know, any day we could, you know, before work on the weekends, after work, we'd be blasting North to go up ab diving. And then when conditions permitted, we dive in town when there's decent fizz. But, uh, so it was a slow progression is all of our group and we're all learning together, just kind of stumbling along, and, um, and basically, you know, I'd, I'd heard of local legends in Santa Cruz, guys like James Locatelli, you know, I'd heard his name, you know, through Bud Miller and a lot of my West side friends that he had grown up with, um, before you know, I ever met him and the guy, you know, full legend, you know, West side born and raised, uh, uh, basically, you know, waterman surfer and an incredible, uh, spearfishman where his dad was in old Santa Cruz Aquatex club. And so I got to meet James, you know, earlier on and, uh, and then shortly after, not shortly, I mean, quite a few years after I started diving, um, uh, Scotty Schmintek, who is one of my original crew, he said, hey, we should start a club. You know, so we talked about it, and then we actually started a, a, a free dive spearfishing club in Santa Cruz about 20 years ago. And that actually opened up a whole new door, you know, where... 
a lot of the kind of underground, you know, really good watermen and guys have been free diving a lot longer than me. Guys like Joe Tobin and Scott Merlo, Big Al Nottingham. You could all meet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, you know, got to meet these guys and become good friends with them. And, and, uh, this you know, the, and this yeah. is the kelp stalkers. Yeah. Santa yep. Cruz kelp stalkers. You're wearing so. the t-shirt. Santa yep. Cruz kelp stalkers. That's right. We're free dive club. Flying fly the colors. But, uh, but it was fun. It was just, um, it was just really essentially just a group of us that got together. The very first meeting, there's seven or eight of us in, in Scotty Schmintech's garage gathered around a Zodiac drinking beers and talking story and go, wow, this is cool. Just because it's, uh, you know, it's nice to go with someone just, uh, if not for the safety, for the camaraderie and the stoke and, and, um, and it was really fun. I mean, basically I, I'd go by myself a lot if I only had like an hour window after I got off of work and conditions permitted, but it was, it was more fun to go with friends, you know, basically. And we go down to Carmel and Big Sur a lot, just like you and Tyler are doing, just because so much better clarity down there. You know, uh, up here, you know, we're mostly, you know, it's mostly st- sandstone on the north end of the bay where you get down into Carmel and and uh, Big Sur, and it's a lot of granite. It's like uh, Mendocino County, where you have a lot better clarity. You have the deep water, you know, the the trench coming up, you know. So, yeah, you also uh, have the like when you're diving with other people, too, you're pushed to be better, and you're pushed to notice what kind of skills the other guys are employing, yep. and how you can like learn those tool belts or those those tools and put them in your tool belt. Yep. You know, I I feel like I always push myself a little bit harder like tyler and i went and dove yesterday and like i want to catch fish more yeah when i'm around him and then we when we plan dinner that night you know you you really do want to get something so you'll oh, stay out time. a little bit longer until yeah. maybe you can shoot a couple rock fish but yeah it's amazing the uh, the different kinds of fish that are in this area as well definitely yeah so like do you have any good uh any good fish stories from around these parts oh man I'm sure um, you do yeah you know i, I remember when back when I, we started about 30 years ago, late eighties. So I, I got completely hooked in 1987 and, um, ever since have been completely addicted to spearfishing. So, um, so basically back then too, we had a little bit of an El Nino going and I remember seeing, um, seeing actually sheep's head, sheep's head. They look like, uh, they look kind of the same shape as a parrotfish, you know, kind of buck teeth. They, um, they, you know, crack shells on the bottom, they're bottom feeders and they're big fish and, you know, they'll get up to 40, 50 pounds. And I actually remember seeing them over at it beach on the other side of the lane. And that was, and haven't seen them since. So that was a warm water year. And we actually used to get a lot of calico bass, which are, um, you know, predominantly in the channel islands in Southern California. Calico bass are amazing eating. They're, you know, basically they call them a bass, but I think it's really more, of a rockfish, I'm not sure technically, but uh, but incredible eating. You know, it's one of the most firm, you know, tasty fish you can get, and they're yeah. also really cagey. Very, very hard, difficult to hunt. Really, you know, basically, they they uh, they intuitively know the size of your gun. They go, okay, this guy has a six foot long um, rife island and the range is 18 feet and i'm going to stay at 18 feet two inches you know so and they're and they're, they're thumbing their nose at you but uh 
um, uh, basically, um, yeah, super, super cagey fish, great eating. And, and I remember seeing those back in the early days. Um, and then basically, um, you know, primarily our, our target species were just different types of rockfish, brown rockfish, um, grass rock cod. Um, we call them kelp, you know, kelp rockfish or brown rockfish, and then basically blues and blacks, um, olives. Occasionally olives look similar to calico bass. They're kind of a checkerboard greenish and, um, it can get pretty good size. I've shot them up like five, six pounds and, um, and yeah, just, just really fun. And how old did yeah. they get to be rockfish? Um, supposedly not supposedly, but I, I hear like 150 years old. Damn, that's so crazy. super ancient. Yeah. So that's, that's another thing too, is, um, uh, myself and all my peers, like in our club, um, we talk about sustainability and, and really only taking, you know, what you're going to eat, you know, just don't, you know, you don't go out and just go crazy and shoot everything in sight and then ended up putting it in your freezer only to throw it away six months later. You know, I try to be cognizant. Um, if I'm going to get more than a fish or two for dinner, you know, it will be because, um, I have, you know, a party or barbecue or something, you know, big family event. That's only time I'll take more. So it's, for me, it's like going to the grocery store, picking out as much as you're going to eat. And so that's one thing nice about it. It's, It's, uh, it's very selective. You know, you identify your target and, uh, pursue it. Yeah. Spearfishing is the most selective kind of fishing you can do. And I think it's also a really good mindset to have because it, it kind of goes back to legacy. Like, how do you want to be remembered? Do you, do you want to be remembered as someone who tried to get his, all the, you know, the, you know, that saying he who dies with the most toys wins, which is kind of this, I think the basis of a lot of humanity's ills is just this, this mindset that like, I want to get as much as I can and pose for the photo. And, you know, we took all the fish out of the water (laughs) versus the mindset of like, of stepping lightly. You know, yeah, live simply to take what you need and not any more than that. Yeah. You know, like I, I think that that's uh, the fact that uh, we're going to be here for what, 90, 100 years that our bodies are going to decompose yeah. and everyone we know is going to die. Like, w- why not just say that, hey, we took as little as we needed to and had a good time with I our agree. friends. You I know? agree. Take a lot in experiences, not things. And spearfishing too, I think um, just like surfing, there's uh, there's different reasons people get into it. I think there is some ego involved. I mean, I think all of us have a, at least a little bit of a competitive nature, but uh, there are some organizations or clubs in spearfishing um, revolving around, you know, competition and take and, and one of the formats, you know, not, I hate to bash anyone, but I know, I think it's the Sencal, um, competitions. Um, you know, I've heard horrific stories where they've held a competition and when they're doing their weigh-ins, there's these just monstrous piles of fish, you know, put on tarps out in the hot asphalt. And to me, it's not carrying, I don't know. I mean, basically, you know, if you're going to do competition, I think it should be very select and and also um, being conscientious about about the take and the format. You know how 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 do you do it? So, like our club, we've never really done that. You know, we have we have a revolving trophy about. Well, I'm being hypocritical here, but we do have a revolving trophy for the biggest you know species each year. But it's not quantity. Some of these tournaments they have, um, it's it's involved. Like they'll do weigh-ins for quantity and. I, and I just, uh, I'm not into that format. I, I agree. Mean, yeah, totally. Well, I also, you know, at the end of the day, even though we don't have nearly as much empathy for fish as we do a species like a deer, they're still living creatures and you're going time. out and killing them. Yep. 
and uh, I think that ethically it's very okay to do that because there's no dissonance between th- taking something's life and and then eating it. Most most of the time when we're eating meat, we have this cognitive dissonance. We don't know really know yeah. where it came from. We don't know how yeah. it died. Um, so I think that it's it's a very moral act if you're taking what you need and you're eating all the fish. I, I agree with that too. And spear fishing, um, especially free dive spear fishing where you're under the water on one breath. And, and the one thing we always keep in the back of our mind, try not to think about it too much because it's very distracting is that we're not the apex predator. You know, definitely um, you have sea lions will come in and buzz you really fast and they'll scare the crap out of you. And um, basically great whites. I mean, basically we're absolutely not the apex predator predator. We're, um, under the water on a single breath and um and pretty much all the fish we're taking um they also eat they're all car- carnivores there's very few uh vegetarian fish so i don't know you know it, it, and i love eating fresh fish and uh and i know some people find that morally wrong you know that's okay um but uh you know i yeah i, lo- I love the whole act i love the diving you know the visuals um and I love eating fresh fish too. Yeah. I had an experience, uh, the other day I was diving down in Monterey and, uh, it was a pretty surgy wind swelly day. It was like six feet at six seconds. One of those ones where it's just whoa, oh, wobbly. Yeah. They always say that, um, I've heard forecasters say that the magic number of seasickness is seasickness is when it's wind swell where the period is the same uh, height is the same uh, number as the amplitude. So yeah. like five feet at five seconds. Yeah. It's just whoa, whoa, whoa. And I was out there diving and I had shot a couple rockfish. So I had this you know, hula skirt of bloody fish and I was a couple hundred yards out in the kelp, kelp beds and I'd eaten, I was camping down there and I had eaten a little too big of a breakfast that morning and I just felt it start to come on. I shot a fish and I was putting my spear back on the gun and I always find that I get seasick when I'm looking at something really sure. close. Yeah. And I just felt it. I was like, oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> just vomited oh, yeah. all over me. Yeah. I had this mode of thinking, man, if this doesn't attract some sharks, I don't know what it is. I got a hula skirt of bloody fish Chumming. and a bunch of vomit. And I'm out here in the kelp beds. Oh. But I'm trying not to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've definitely been there. Abalone diving. Um, with poor viz and where it's really, really surgy by the time you see, by the time you dive down and you're able to see the bottom like halfway or most of the way through a dive and the bottom is rushing by you. That is definitely a formula for seasickness for sure. I've definitely gotten queasy. I've never, never actually puked, but I've been pretty, pretty green by the time I've come in a lot of times ab dive in. I know if it's really bad, poor viz and surgy, I'd actually take something like boning, you know, which yep. is, it's a uh, meclizine. Yeah. I have some of that in my, in yeah. my dive bag. And that's, it's not a bad idea to do. So, uh, yeah, definitely. Do, so do you, uh, how do you weigh risk when you're going out to dive, whether it be around, um, the risk of great whites being in the area, um, and any of the other risks, because it is obviously uh, a, a dangerous sport. Risk, um, it, it's weird too. Uh, um, having in my past life, having surfed Mavericks, you know, and, and really, you know, 
a great experience getting to serve it for the first five years. Yeah, I want to talk about um, that a, a little later on. Yeah, and basically, and I quit surfing Mavericks. Um, the last day I surfed it on a regular basis was two days before Mark Fu died. It was December 1994 after you know five years under the belt and came home. And, um, and basically, I had eaten shit on a big one, a big swing wide that day. And it kind of rattled me a little bit. And then got home that was on that wednesday it was huge on that monday wednesday and friday i think one of those days that was, was the el nino year right um it was definitely and yeah it, that year the mike food died it was yeah. good at mavericks for like 30, 30 days in a row or something i no, heard I, some well i don't know about 30 ma- days, I, I, that, yeah maybe that being hyperbolic that, but it was just a really good winter where there were that, a lot of days oh, there was and that that one week it, uh, it was the week before christmas uh december 94 it broke Huge, big, big, legit Mavericks on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I remember surfing it on Wednesday. And um, I'm getting sidetracked, but basically I remember, um, you know, eating shit really bad, blew my squid lid off, you know, basically um, as on my last way, went straight in tail between my legs and I'm um, getting home that night and, you know, telling the wife about it. And then a couple of day- days later, Mark Fu died. Um, we had our second child on the way. My second daughter um, was a bun in the oven. And my wife's going, hey, maybe it's time for you to think about hanging it up. And I was re- really ready to do that. And um, the thing is, is... Uh, is basically spearfishing replace that, you know, I mean, you know, from, from a risk standpoint. So as far as risk, I try not to think about, you know, critters like great whites, you know, I'm cognizant and always, you know, you know, head on a swivel looking around, you know, at the surroundings, you know, and if you just, if you have a sense or foreboding sense, you know, I try to key into intuitions and, and, um, you know, like kind of sixth sense, you know, I mean, if it's something feels kind of spooky or weird or, I don't know, you know, then I'd, I would probably tend to maybe dive more inside. But uh, um, the big risk, the biggest one is shallow water black help by far in a way. And um, the the thing you have to remember is to not push it too hard. I mean, basically, if you're coming up seeing stars, you're probably pushing it too hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, um, I heard that something like 90 percent of blackouts happen within 10 feet of the surface. So it's guys going down and gals going down and they come up and uh, within that 10 feet of coming up, that's usually when people will black out. That's when their lungs are expanding most. And and that's uh, that's the greatest risk of of danger. It's it's rarely that people will black out on the bottom. True. Yeah. Kind of a I I think it's kind of a a chemical exchange that goes on in your blood. Um, I think release of carbon dioxide. I'm not sure exactly what the process is physiologically, but you're absolutely right. It happens within 10 feet of the surface. So, you know, a few things you have to be cognizant of is, uh, is to make sure that you're buoyant, you know, for, you know, in that zone from maybe, you know, 10 or 15 feet down by the time you hit that level that you're buoyant and not too negative where you'd sink back down to the bottom. How much weight do you use if you're in a seven mil suit? Seven mil, you know, it's different. It's, there's no rhyme or reason. Everybody has different body mass, you know, regardless of if they're fat, they're skinny, they're muscular, they're, they're soft. Um, it's weird, you know, physiologically, everybody needs different weights. Some people are floaters and some people are sinkers. And I don't know if there's any rhyme or reason why, why that is. But, um, for myself, um, 
I have a couple different weight belts, my two main weight belts. Um, for seven mil, I wear 24 pounds. And for my five mil wetsuit, and then for free diving, all of us have progressed into the regular free dive suits, which is old school, long john with a pullover jacket. And so basically you're doubled up. So on a seven mil suit, you're doubled up to 14 mil in the chest. You know, so for me, I need 24 pounds. <coughs> and then the other thing, if I'm diving shallow, like for halibut, um, the halibut, I think most that the most uh, common, effective um, depth for halibut, and that can really vary. They can be in deep water or they can be in shallow, but where we're free diving, a lot of times I'll see them in shallower water, you know, along sandy bottoms is, you know, you're, you know, looking for the right terrain, you know, where you have a, you know, a reef butted up against sand channels. That's, you know, optimum terrain for halibut and a lot of times if we're diving shallow if you're if you're too corky um you know for typically when i'm wearing a seven mil suit and diving with 24 pounds of lead i'm pretty neutral at about 15 feet where i can drop down and cruise diagonal where if you drop your head a little bit you're heading down if you raise your head you're heading up but you're able to cruise on the parallel plane without corking, whether you're starting to float to the surface or crashing into the bottom, that's optimum where you're not expending any, any energy to move sideways. You're not fighting it. So if you're in shallow water and you're, and you're too, um, you're, you're not weighted enough, then you're fighting it to stay down. And you, you basically you'll suck twice as much oxygen and energy and knock your bottom time in half or even less, you know, so, um, so, you know, the white, right weighting is, is critical, you know, so for me, it's like 24 pounds and on a seven, 20 with a five. And then, and sometimes you can't always plan for what depth you're going to be diving. It's kind of where you end up following, you know, finding the fish. And if you're diving a new spot, you know, you could be diving at 10 feet and it could be a real productive zone, or you may need to go to 20 feet. So, you know, around 15 feet for me has been pretty safe where I, I can handle shallower, you know, and I can go deeper without, you know, without it being too hard to get off the bottom. Right. So have you had yeah. any experiences blacking out or getting close to blacking out? Um, only in the pool. You know, we did a, we did a free dive training clinic for our club. It was up at San Lorenzo Valley high school about 10 years ago. Um, we had a guy named Scott Campbell. He was on the U S free dive team. Scott is, um, is a free diving legend. Yeah. He's on the U S team. Um, and in competition, he's done six and a half minute bottom times, like static breath hold, um, and that's not huffing oxygen like these guys do, like kind of more for a stunt or anything like that. He's just, you know, natural and natural, you know, big guy, you know, takes good care of himself. Um, and so he put on a clinic and basically we're up San Lorenzo Valley High School and for just, a, you know, a few guys in our club, I think it's about 15 of us. And um, and I, I uh, they said that my eyes rolled back when they came up after a time dive. What, what you do is you go down to the bottom of a pool and you have someone counting off on the surface every 15 seconds, like 315, 330. And every time you hear that count, you give them a signal, like, you know, flick your finger or acknowledge that you're hearing them so they know you haven't blacked out. And so I came up and they said my eyes rolled back in my head, but that's about the closest ever came. And that was it. And I had clocked 410. Not bad. Had, no, that, that was, I was stoked. Yeah, I was like third best in our club. Uh, Alex Peabody, he was a state lifeguard legend um, who passed away a couple of years ago from ALS. Alex had a had a 411 
and Mikey Golder, West Side Surf Legend, had a 418. It's weird. I'd never forget those numbers, but uh, yeah, I was pretty stoked. Not able to do that anymore. We had another free dive clinic, and I dropped down to about 10 years later, had dropped down to about 330. So, well, it's in a controlled setting. Totally. So to push yourself in that setting and, and feel what it, what it really does feel like to get to the point of blacking out, I think yeah. can be a really helpful experience. I yeah. had the chance to take one of those courses as well. Performance freediving? Yeah, performance wow. freediving course. Yeah. yeah. And um, I figure, and we were in the pool, we were doing the static apnea where you have a partner, they tap on your shoulder every 15 yeah. seconds, you raise your finger. And I thought to myself, there's never going to be another time where I it, yeah. can push it like this. And I'm very conservative um, what, in free diving. I rarely go down for you know, more than a, a minute, minute at a time, really, because I just don't want to fuck with it. Um, but it, it's fun. It's an empowering experience. I almost would equate it to like a meditation retreat where you, you, put, you break down a door of belief in a very short Big amount time. of time. It, ours was a three-day course, and in that time, to break down just how how deep you think you can go, how long you think you can hold your breath, and by the end, it's, I think I I tripled, tripled my breath hold yeah. time. Yeah. No, I, I hear that. I hear, boy, I, I hear um, that... Uh, there's there's also a free diving clinic over on the Big Island of Hawaii. I think it's Brett Lemasters. Yeah, no, I've heard about him. you know just basically um, your average everyday homemaker housewife coming in and clocking five minutes. You know, so after the training, where it does it, you know, the proper technique, the confidence, and breaking down these mental barriers that you think are there that may not be there. Yeah. So so yeah. Do you so um, I do want to learn a bit more about great whites and risk associated with them do yeah. you dive river mouths or if it's a dirty day does that affect your decision to to go out well shoot i hate the only time i would dive a really dirty day is like if in old days when we we're up on abalone diving camping trip and um i was held meant on bringing home dinner you know which right. i hate diving in crappy conditions i mean it's it's claustrophobic it's uh it's just foreboding, you know, diving down where you can hardly see your hand in front of your face. It's not fun. No. And um, it's anything but it's fun. It's just a bunch of sediment all oh, around oh, you. It's horrible, yeah. A piece of kelp uh, bumps yeah. up against your yeah. leg. And you're like, whoa, what yeah. was that? Yeah, oh, it looks like you're God. in a hot, you know, basically you're in a blender. Yeah, you know, with, with <laughs> that's a good way to put oh, it. Oh, man, it is. No, it's horrible. <laughs> you're in a blender. Yeah, number one, you have the surge and then you have all the little particles particulates and kelp floating by like you said it's 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 tedious so in psychologically too i find that you know when the sun's out and it's glistening and you know there's you know like at least you know for the five to ten feet in front of you it's crystal clear and you're able to see all the details it just um you forget about holding your breath and um and basically uh um it just opens up your mind and opens up your bottom time and and uh it's yeah it's great and I've Go for it. And so as far as great whites, you know, I really, I try not to think about them. I'm not diving any like extremely sharky areas. I've heard crazy stories. Like in our club, guys would dive down at this pipeline in south, the south part of um, Santa Cruz County. And they dive for halibut. And it's a deep dive. Most people tank dive it. But um but a, f a few of my friends would free dive it, and the, and the range is about forty five to sixty feet deep, and they're shooting halibut in that deep of water on on a single breath. And on one trip, they were down there, 
um, they came across a harbor seal that was such a, excuse me, they came across half of a harbor seal that was such a fresh hit that it was still pumping blood out and saw that on the bottom and immediately went to the surface and some guys in a boat came by and said, Hey, we just saw a ginormous great white, you know, so that's a, that I would equate to high risk. And then just recently last year, father and son team right down to Pebble beach in in Monterey County, um, we're free dive spear fishing and the son had a stringer of fish, just like you were describing earlier and got hit, you know, a horrific hit almost lost his leg. It's a, it's just a miracle. They were even able to save and salvage his leg. So do you think yeah. that the shark was going after the fish? It smelled the bloody fish and went I, after I'd, it. I'd say very likely, you know, I don't know if they can, they can discern between, um, fish blood or pinniped blood, but, um, but, you know, supposedly, I mean, you know, we, we hear that they're, they're their sense of smell is so keen that they can smell a drop of blood in water from a long, long way away. So, so I don't, I try not to think about that. Um, and we dive, um, we do trips to Cortez bank every year. And, um, and just over the last couple of years with El Nino, there's been a proliferation of hammerhead sharks where we seen them in the water. And, um, uh, two years ago, on our trip, we do an annual trip to Cortez this year. Coming up in September will be, I believe, my 18th trip to Cortez Bank, which is 100 miles out to sea off of the San Diego-Mexico border. And um, it's uh, there's not an island out there. There's just a, a sea mount that comes within about 25 feet of the surface and a big kelp bed and um, a lot of pelagics. You know, the, our target is typically yellowtail because they're the most... Uh, prolific you know we see the most yellowtail in the kelp bed you can fight find white sea bass there's also calico bass um and it it's deep around the periphery of the kelp bed it's it, the the depth is anywhere from uh, 55 to about 75 feet deep water and um and so you know there's been a proliferation of the the hammerheads and then two years ago there's um, a few of our local divers, Alex Vieira, Hans Havemann, I forget who else from our club, went on a trip just uh, a week or two before our annual Cortez trip is in August August of 16. And a guy from Pacifica had just shot a nice yellowtail. And then typically, you know, when you get them, by the time you get to the fish, you know, like pull it up or dive down to it on your shooting line and, and you pretty much get the things in a headlock, you know, try to control them and, you know, like slip your hand up under the gills or pinch the eyes, whatever you can to control them. They're powerful fish. A 25 pound yellowtail is absolutely capable of pulling you underwater and dragging you. You know, guys have drowned too. So you have to be really, really cognizant. You don't want to get wrapped up in kelp. You don't want to or wrapped up in your, wrapped line. In your shooting line. Yeah. That's, that's one thing you have to be very, very cognizant of is keeping that shooting line out in front of you. There's a lot of it like i i dive with um when i'm diving blue water or diving at cortez or even white sea bass down the channel islands um i use on my rife my shooting line you know i have my bigger gun rife island six foot long gun and i have um it's four wraps which is about 25 feet a shooting line and my shooting line is a plastic coated stainless steel cable and it's extremely difficult to cut even with a good serrated knife um, you really, you may not be able to get through it unless it's really under tension. You know, the smarter guys have clippers, you know, basically 
uh, snips to cut that if they were to get tangled. But I just try to be very, very, very cognizant of keeping that. Kind line. of like garden clippers. Yeah. Um. No. You know, more like um, like commercial clippers oh, to right, go right, through, right. like to snip cable. Okay. You know, I mean, very, very specific. They'll yep. keep them in a little, you know, in a pocket in their wetsuit. I, I remember Alex Peabody was very safety conscious as a, you know, as a career state lifeguard, beach lifeguard used to always carry those so and i should think about doing it myself so what can happen so let's say you're out at cortez you shoot a yellowtail has this ever happened to you um no i i haven't gotten wrapped you know like i said i'm super super conscientious about it but they can go nuts i mean they could they could run a full circle around you um you know maybe your line is is caught on your fin you're not cognizant of that um and basically you can get wrapped you just it just it can happen quickly you know everything's going at warp speed and and if you haven't gotten to the surface yet, you know, I mean, I don't know. You yeah, especially if you're really... shooting it down at 40 or 50 feet. Yeah. So a picture, you see a big yellow tail, yep. you get in range for a shot, shoot it, but you don't stone it. And it starts swimming, does a wrap around you. It can absolutely And starts do swimming that. down. Yep. How are you going to get out of that? Um, potentially not. You know, you have to be, you have to be super, super careful. But, um Fuck! No, you got to be, you got to be careful. Like I said, there's, there are some elements of risk and that's definitely one of them. You know, aside from, you know, shallow water blackout being number one, number two, spearfishing and blue water would be, that would be number maybe two or three, either sharks, you know, like hammerhead or great white or whatever type is, you know, uh, prevalent in the area. So those are the things that you definitely have to be aware of. So if you're shooting a fish that big, and this is foreign to me because I've, haven't gone on a blue water spearfishing trip yet and i'm in the world of rockfish and lingcod yeah and, which is a world of that's completely different because those fish will not drag you down no but if you're shooting a 25 pound uh tuna how, like how what break down that process and how that's different from shooting a rockfish will you drop your gun yeah so basically for all my rockfish fishing, it's basically just a shooting line attached to the gun, and that is it. You know, now I do a little trailer. I'll get the yellow polypropylene cord because it's dirt cheap. You can feed it back through itself to make a really clean loop. And I'll do I'll do like a 10 or 12-foot tag line just attached to my gun. If I had to leave my – let's if I shot a big link on I had to leave it, the gun in a hole just so I'm able to find it easier. If I had to go to the surface in 25 feet of water, then I'm able to go back down and find that yellow shooting line and find the gun but for blue water hunting when you're when you're hunting tuna or yellowtail or wahoo um it's all breakaway it's not a when your shaft leaves the gun it's completely free shaft where it's attached to a a shooting line and then at the end of the shooting line you have a float line and then a float line is typically attached to a buoy so it's not attached to your gun so no so it the completely independent yeah so as soon as you shoot that fish a couple things you have to be aware of. Number one is grabbing your gun so it doesn't float away. So the one thing I do is I grab my gun and I throw my bands over my shoulder. You know, like I, I put my arm through the loop in the bands um, at the front of the gun. And it's just kind of bouncing along my body and, and it's with me. It's part of me while I'm fighting the fish and it's out of the way. And then will you, so if you're down at 40 feet, you shoot the fish, will you swim up first? Um, or will you try and control the fish if you? Sh- and no, then- basically I'll try. I, I make sure I have my hand on the line, either the shooting line, and typically if it's a big enough fish, it's going to pop. You know, you you typically I have a plug in the fish, um, excuse, excuse me, in the gun that will that will pop out, 
and um, and then basically, then you're on to your uh, you know, first you're on your shooting line that 25 feet, but better with a bigger fish to tire them out. We have these bungee lines which are stretchy, and it helps tire out the fish. <coughs> Okay, so then do you so you're holding on to the you're holding on to your gun, then you're holding on to the line separately that you just Absolutely. shot. So like I said, I'll, I'll loop my arm through the bands in the gun, you know, at the front part of the gun, so that way I don't even have to think about my gun. It's part of me. It's just like attached, you know, just kind of over my shoulder. You have the the bands always loop through the very front end of the muzzle on the gun, the very end of the gun. Then once you put your arm through that. It's just uh, kind of almost like a, you know, like slinging the backpack over your shoulder is really a good um, analogy. And then it's out of sight, out of mind, but you're not going to forget about it. Yeah. And then what's the next step? And then the next step is is um, controlling the fish. You know, so ideally um, with yellowtail, a lot of times they're around the edge of a kelp bed and you don't want them to get wrapped too deep. You know, if your fish wraps at 50 or more feet deep, it's super dangerous to try to go down and clear the fish. You know, so ideally, I try to keep them out of kelp, so I'm directing them, like, you know, forcibly away from the kelp without horsing them too hard. So a lot of the bigger pelagic fish, um, whether it's a tuna, wahoo, uh, white sea bass, yellowtail, they're super powerful fish, but the flesh is relatively soft, and so is the skin. So if you have a belly shot on the fish and you're horsing the fish, it can tear off, which is a travesty. We all feel sick when that happens. You know, so, um, you know, you want to, you want to, you know, to the very best of your ability, try to land a fish, you know, while also being safe and, you know, keeping all the things, you know, a lot of it becomes intuitive, but you do have to think about it. Yeah. So, so you're directing it. Now you're at the surface kind of yeah. slowly pulling it in. Yes. So, exactly, and then you're yeah. just physically pulling the line in and getting the fish closer and closer. Absolutely. Yeah. Until, you know, hopefully you're tiring it out when it's on your, when it's on your float line, which are typically the way the float lines work is there's a casing and the best casing is some sort of a stretchy casing, you know, where um, we have some float tubes that um, float lines that we have made with our, our club member and in, incredibly good diver, Scott Merlot, um, where it is, um, God, what is the name of the material? I forget, but it's, it's essentially a neoprene tubing that's really, really thick and durable and then inside of it you have a shooting line like spectra that's super strong extremely hard to break and then there's plugs on each end so when we're building these float lines um you know typical length would be 50 to 70 feet you have two guys on each end so what you do is you you attach the the core line which is spectra and that can be 700 to 1400 pound test just flat out not going to break first very difficult to cut too and so what you do is you put the plug in one end of this bungee line then you get two guys doing this uh, on each end actually doing this tug of war and you stretch this thing out and as you do that um it's uh stretching out past the end you know not past the end but all the way to the end of uh as far as you can stretch it, it'll stretch to double length, like a 55 foot float line will go out, you know, easily to 110 feet. And then you kind of clamp it off. And then when you come back together, um, that inner line, that spectral line is all coiled up inside there, you know, so, um, you know, so that it's not just this neoprene line, it's the, it's the core line, but it will stretch. And that stretching action is what 
helps keep you from getting too tired out while tiring out the fish. Right. You know, so it's under control. And so by the time you get down to the fish and a lot of times by the time you get down to them, they become real lively again. So you got to, I mean, you pretty much got to pounce on the fish. I mean, you know, essentially get them into a headlock. If you have a good size yellowtail that's over 30 pounds, I mean, basically it's, you know, the head's easily the size of a football. Then the body is, you know, that diameter too, or bigger, bigger than a football. And then you're doing a wraparound. It's like full headlock. So do you wrap around, do you wrap your arm around its stomach or around the top of it? Around the top, you know, top, the top third of the fish. Yeah. Just try to get it under control. Okay. And then, you know, once you can get your hand up under the gill plate and grab the gills, then you got it, you know, and, 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 uh, and they're, yeah, they're powerful, man. They're, uh, so when you get your hand yeah. under the gill plate and you're, then are you holding on to the gill to Absolutely. control it? And will you try and rip the gill out or no. what's, you'll just hold on to yeah, it and then you'll it. brain it? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so the other thing too, so that's where things have changed a little bit. Um, I got sidetracked too when we were talking about, um, sharks and worrying about those, um, before what we do is bleed the fish out, you know, basically, you know, better quality meat when you do that, you know, so we, we'd slit it, slit the gills and then, you know, that the fish, the heart's still pumping and it pumps a lot of the blood out. So it just it makes for better quality meat where the blood's not getting into that flesh of the fish and which makes it gamier, fishier, not, you know, not as good eating. So, um, we've, uh, kind of abandoned that practice as there's been a lot more hammerheads around. And then, um, that trip two years ago, a couple of weeks before a regular trip that, uh, Alex and Hans were on a guy from Pacific had just shot a big yellowtail, um, had gotten it in a headlock and out of nowhere, they estimated it was about 11 foot hammerhead came up trying to get his fish and it hit the fish and hit his hand and basically severed tendons in his hand and wrist. And so basically, you know, not life threatening injury, but definitely limb threatening, you know, not that like he's going to lose his hand, but it's, you know, could cause irreparable damage. So they ended up having to, uh, um, get a, get a chopper out to pluck him off of the dive boat, the peace dive boat out of Ventura. Um, and get they were back at to shore. Cor- they were at Cortez. They were at Cortez when that happened. So you yeah. had to get airlifted out. Yeah, and then so just um so uh um two weeks later on our trip to Cortez, um our mutual friend Tyler Fox um ended up saving one of the divers in our club who ended up getting pulmonary edema, which um they said typically from what I hear that as often as not ends up being fatal. You know, it's fluid in the lungs. I don't know what triggers it, but um. But uh, we were diving and the fishing was really hot. I just shot and landed a 34 pound yellowtail that, you know, basically kicked my ass. It was one of those ones I was desperately trying to keep it from wrapping up too deep and keep it out of the kelp. And the thing was, um, it was absolutely pulling me underwater. It's like full, took me everything I could to get and land this fish to keep it from getting wrapped. Got it on the boat. Super excited. Guys were seeing fish. My Danny Foy had just shot one you know, just almost identical to mine. Um, and basically another big fish and, and, uh, jump back into water and the chase boat, the Zodiac gave me and Mikey Golder a ride up to the top of the current to go, Hey, you want to ride up and do a drift back? And we went, absolutely. And we got halfway and then the guy's walkie talkie went off and go, Hey, someone in distress at the other end. So we turned around, ran back and then um, Tyler Fox was doing a cross chest carry on this diver. And I, and I grabbed the gun there. Look at me. Mikey Golder is a paramedic fireman. And, and they look at me, a mortgage broker. They go, you mortgage broker out of the boat, paramedic. You know, so um, they, they grabbed the diver, you know, Tyler, and they got him into the boat. 
And um, it was scary. He looked, he was blue, ashen gray. Didn't look like, I thought he was having a heart attack. He's a, you know, one of the older divers in our club, late fifties, you know, surfer, diver. And, and um, God knows what triggered the pulmonary edema. But um, I grabbed his gun and swam it back. And um, they got him in his Zodiac, got him back to the boat and then started administering oxygen and called uh, a Coast Guard chopper came out and plucked him off of our boat. And yeah. um, I've yeah. heard of pulmonary edema happening a lot in the sport of mountaineering. Uh, it's real common at, for altitude, guys, yeah. at altitude guys going up Everest and getting pulmonary edema. But mountaineering and freediving are the only two sports where your um, body chemistry, I guess, is what, what's the correct way of saying this? Um, they were telling us about this in our freediving class that they're the only two sports where your chemistry will change when you yeah. are doing this, the sport. Yeah. I don't know if that's the correct way of saying it. Probably, but, yeah. yeah. They say that, you know, basically free diving, you know, ideally, you know, part of technique is just getting really, really relaxed and yeah. deep breathing and really getting super oxygenated. Yeah. And it's almost a, a mammalian reflex, yeah. you know, like the pinnipeds can go down and stay down like a like a um, elephant seal. They can spend an hour on the bottom. Yeah. You know, so um, free divers have that to a small degree. Yeah, man. Have you ever uh, gone out and surfed Cortez? Um, heck no. no. I've been out there 18 times. It's funny. I'll, I'll tell people, yeah, I've been to Cortez Bank 18 times. I still haven't caught a wave yet. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you're no, going on the opposite conditions. Exactly. No, we, we always go around Labor Day. So this, this year we're leaving on Labor Day to go down. It's a three day out to sea trip. Yeah, so, man. So super fun. Um, what was it like in the early days surfing Mavericks? Um, um, it blew my mind. You know, like I said, the first place I ever surfed in my life was Princeton Breakwater right in the shadow of Mavericks and never knew it existed. And then so fast forward, that was 1972. Fast forward to 1990. And by that point in time, like late, you know, all through the from early 80s through late 80s, you know, being a good waterman, I was, you know, back then I was, you know, I had 15 years as a state beach lifeguard and all my friends and peers, they were younger than me, but better watermen, you know, the Schmidt brothers, Richard and David, Vince Collier, um, you know, Bud Miller, um, Charlie Heitman, um, you know, back, back in the day, guys like Hans Vermey, guys that were charging big waves. So we're surfing Tony Lamb, we're surfing big waves. Um, and it was really kind of underground. There weren't many people. There was almost like a fad kicked in. I mean, when you look at how incredibly crowded Mavericks is now, you know, we loved, we loved heavy water. And, uh, so first time surfing Mavericks did not know it existed really hardly. I think just about no one knew it existed. Dave Schmidt and I were on our way up to, um, surf point arena, NorCal, you know, great reef break, you know, good, powerful, big way spot, you know, similar to in a lane or sunset beach in Hawaii. And, and it was huge and out of control. And we're checking the city. We're in a group of guys as Doc Reniker and a few other San Francisco guys and me and Big Bird, Dave Schmidt. And Jeff came up to us and pulled us aside and was going, hey, we got, I got this place that will blow your mind. Jeff Clark? Yes, Jeff Clark, yeah. So I'd known Jeff you know, from surfing since back in high school up north. And I, I grew up up north, San Mateo County, and then moved down to Santa Cruz when I was 18 and 73. And you know, got to be really good friends with the Schmidt brothers. And Charlie Heitman and Vince Collier were all my main surfers friends back yeah. in the day so what was that and, like um, oh it was great and so so we're uh so we're at ob jeff pulls us aside and um and we heard that point arena was kind of out of control so we're and we had a couple days off of work we we're ready to you know we we're going to go up and stay the night and surf and and so jeff drug us back to mavericks and we checked it from the north side pillar point and um and dave was just 
freaking just going, oh my God. He's going, that is YMA, a pacing back and forth. And it did. It looked huge and crazy. And So you, and, guys, uh, walk, you guys walk up to that point yep. and you're checking check spot, Mavericks yeah. from that check spot. Yeah. So from behind, from the lefts, you yep. know, from, from Pillar Point. And I'd surf, I'd surf Ross's Cove on the other side and Prince and Breakwater both sides and just had no... In, you know, inkling that it was out there. So, so we piled out and it was a beautiful day. I think, God, I think the day was uh, January 22nd, 1990. It was the day after Richard Schmidt got third in the Eddie Ical. Yep. And then um, that swell, first it hit Hawaii, Waimea, then it hit us, and then it hit Toto Santos. So there's like three day run. So if you're, if you're a jet set, globe trotter, big wave hound, you would have had three day run. I and, know guys who will do that. Yeah. They'll surf a uh, yeah. swell at Jaws. Yeah. They'll come to Mavericks. Then they'll go down to Totos. Yeah. Three day run. I haven't done that trifecta. It seems yeah. exhausting. Oh, totally. But anyway, we ended up out there for about four hours. It's kind of mid, I think midday, you know, early afternoon, not a drop of water out of place. No wind. It was huge, huge, insane Mavericks, but just sunny, beautiful. Just yeah, you just me. Me, Jeff, and Dave. What size board are you on? Um, I was on an 8.4. I had an 8.4 rounded pin, big, thick, beefy Coletta, Steve Coletta board, natural curse board. Dave was on an 8.4 Curteau, and Jeff was on a board that he made those nine feet. And actually, we got waves. I got I only got two waves that day, but I got two solid set waves. Dave got, I think, five, and Jeff got a few more waves than that. Were there any and, boats in the lineup? No, there's no one around. No one around. I mean, no one around. There, the guy that there was a guy filming that day. He saw us going out. It was Eric Nelson from Powerline Production. It was just like, back then, he was not a professional photographer. Like, you'd be filming seagulls, and, and it was funny. It was kind of grainy footage and and so we we actually have footage from that first day and then and we kept it under wraps i mean dave and i were paddling out just blowing our minds going holy shit you can fing- fit a single family residence in that wave and and we're just going no one will even believe us and and then also we kept it under wraps too just kind of looking at jeff taking his lead we don't want to you know that was his deal and his spot, spot yeah. and we didn't want to let the cat out of the bag so you, you guys know. would but you guys would go up just you guys and yeah and surf how like how many swells did you get when it was like just you guys around a lot i mean over the next few years like the next couple years um you know word got out pretty quick but it was still just a handful you know from santa cruz is like vince broglio mark Gowen, me you know we richie we drug out the next year the next fall um we drug vince collier out for the first time and vince didn't want to go out because he had friends like uh timmy Lybrinth, who was a commercial fisherman that had seen great whites out there and and even VC was going, man, you guys are nuts. The place is really sharky. But then once, once we got him out there, then Vince became the Pied Piper dragging out Flea and and Barney and Zach Acker and all the young West Side Groms, Josh Loya. You know, wow. So, so, yeah, it was fun. You know, got it for five years and, and um, you know, before stop. I would yeah. just imagine that you could push your surfing so much on a day where there aren't crowds like when you could, when you can really pick and choose i it's a fundamentally different kind of surfing oh it's huge and i think that one of the big dangers in surfing mavericks nowadays is that it is so crowded it's difficult to be picky yeah you so you see a lot of guys who will take off on waves just to do it because they haven't caught a wave in three hours yeah and it's not the it's not the one you want but no if you were out there with, with just five of your buddies you could really pick the wave that you want. I was always super cautious. Mavericks always scared the shit out of me. I loved the adrenaline. I loved the rush. But at the same time, I had a very, 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 very healthy fear. 
and respect. And I was super calculated. I mean, I've nowhere that near the surfing skills and ability that all my peers that surfed at the Schmidt brothers and those guys, you know, flea Vince Collar, those guys surf circles around me, but, but I was a good enough waterman and, you know, a decent enough surfer where I could get ways. And, and, uh, and, um, and I got them, but I was always really, really cautious and very calculated and, and, uh, yeah, place yeah, scared the shit out of me. Man, what a what a special time in surfing it was, and what a special spot. I, I'm just thinking, just like man, imagine if if my group of friends and I were around. I just yeah, I, I identify with a lot of what you're saying. I really like your attitude and your zest for life, man. I uh, oh, thank you. I hope to yeah. keep it when I'm your age. I'm just yeah. thinking back to like, man, it, we would have been buddies oh, if we were the same age. Oh, for know, sure. If you're, no. if you're in your 20s, going around, getting me into all all the crazy shit that you would uh, go do with all your buddies. No, it's it's fun, man. It's been you know, I f- I feel like I've had a a blessed life, and with you know a lot of friends passing and recent years like Barney Barney grew up across the street from me I gave yeah. him his first surfboard and and Vince Collier recently Vince is a dear dear friend back in the 80s you know I'd known him since he was a kid in the 70s and and um um you know seeing these guys go you know none of us get out of here alive and and I I don't take it for granted and I feel so thankful you know for the experience I had you know I mean basically uh um you know my, my life surfing and diving and you know all my friendships in Santa Cruz man I I don't take any of that for granted. You know, I feel very blessed and, and thankful and, uh, and yeah, still frothing, man, you know, still frothing hard. Yeah. So, gratitude. Yeah. yeah. You, uh, seem like you're on a gratitude tour, which, Absolutely. Ke- which keeps the energy coming in, keeps yeah. you getting out in the water. Absolutely. Hell yeah, man. Well, Hey, thank you so much for yes. taking the time sitting My down pleasure. with me. I'd yeah. love to have you back on anytime and, uh, let's go shoot some fish together. Heck yes. Okay. Right thank you. Thank you, Tom. That's our show. I'm going to play you out with a song by a band called Pinstripe Love Seat. The song's called Killers. These guys listened to the podcast. They sent me some tunes. And I will link to their band page in the show notes below this episode. If you have some groovy tunes that you want played at the end of this show, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. That's also where you can send a little voice memo in. If you're tuning in from an especially radical spot, take 30 seconds record a little voice memo on your phone and email it to info at kyle.surf once again this is an ad-free podcast thank you so much to everyone who donates on patreon even five bucks ten bucks a month it really does make a difference so click the link below tom's bio here or head over to the website kyle.surf and donate that's it for this week get out in the water go shoot some fish in the face or at least go body surf some waves if you can. I promise it will make your day better. And have a great one. See you soon. Here's a song called Killer. Killers by Pinstripe Love Seed.